welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, January 1st, 2010. I'm Alana Rangi. Danish biophysicist Ole Mortsen has a thing for sushi. So much of a thing, in fact, that he's recently written a huge book all about it. Ole believes the best laboratory in the world is the kitchen. This week, we're talking about the science and the history of sushi. Did you know that the Japanese have higher IQs because of their rich diet of omega-3s? Or that seaweed is a $2 billion industry? I know, and that's only the beginning. Science in the City has put a little something together for you for the new year. Five brilliant women scientists talking about subjects that interest women and the people who love them. We're calling it our Girls' Night Out series because we all know science could use a lot more women. Helen Fisher kicks off the series on January 5th with her take on the science of love and whom we choose. Then we've got topics from food to beauty to our changing ecosystem. Act fast and you can take advantage of our season tickets package. Buy tickets to all five events and get a free membership to the New York Academy of Sciences, a savings of over $100. Find all you need to know about Girls' Night Out online at www.nyas.org slash girlsnightout. My name is Ole Mauds and I'm a professor of physics and I'm from the University of Southern Denmark in, in Denmark. And I'm um, interested in physics and the border disciplines between physics, chemistry, and biology. And I've always been wondering what's happening when you take um, your knowledge from one field and bring it into another field. And that's probably also why I get interested in sort of weird things, at least weird things for a scientist to be interested, say, in, in foodstuff and the science behind foodstuff. The first time I saw sushi and ate it was actually at a market where I saw something called maki sushi, which are rolls of rice with some fish inside, say some red fish, for instance, tuna, and the nori, which is the seaweed wrap you have on the outside. And to me, it certainly looked like a snake that has been cut into pieces. And then um, you sort of start looking at it and, and, and actually learn that this is something you can eat. So this is my first encounter with sushi. And ever since I tasted the first time, I was sort of hooked on it. So hooked, in fact, that Ole's written a book about sushi on everything from the chemistry of rice to the nutrition and the farming of the fish to the science behind the knives used to prepare it. Ole is tall, blonde, and rosy-cheeked, essentially the opposite of Japanese. Yet his knowledge of sushi as a food and a tradition could be coming from the lips of a sushi master. He's an expert. He's also a biophysicist with an active lab. In my lab, uh, I work with using basic physics and chemistry to understand living materials and how one can use those insights to, say, produce new drugs or produce sort of new materials that have uh, properties that are, reflects the properties you find in, in living matter. So we call it biological physics or biophysics or the physics of living matter. In the free time, I spend a lot of time in the, in the real big lab because, you know, the biggest lab in the world, that's the kitchen. I mean, we have a big uh, network of labs, which are our kitchens, and a lot of wonderful things that are happening in the kitchen. And when you as a scientist go in your kitchen, if you like to cook, 
you start asking the kind of curious questions you'll also ask when you work as a scientist in the lab. You sort of ask uh, questions as to how come things look as they do. I mean, how come they change as you prepare them in different ways. When it comes to sushi, Oli's lab has been applying some of his hard science to studying sushi and its ingredients. We've actually been studying various chemical compounds that are you'll find in, in various uh, materials that are using to produce sushi. For instance, the fatty acids, which are important for our, our health, which you'll find in all foodstuff from the ocean, fish, shellfish, and seaweed. But there are also various other substances that are used for preservation, which you'll find in perilla, which you will certainly get in a, in a sashimi meal, the sushi bar. Or you can also ask what sort of sterols are there in seaweed, which are different from the sterols you have in the other foodstuff you eat, in particular foodstuff from from meat. Sushi has two main ingredients, a vinegar rice, which is both salty and sweet, and then fish, usually raw, or sometimes vegetable, either pressed on top or rolled into bite-sized bits. The way that the fish and rice are presented define the type of sushi, from maki rolls to nigiri pieces to tamaki hand rolls. The rice in the sushi has a reason for being there, says Ole. The rice is essential, and that's something, there's an interesting question you can ask to the rice, which most people don't think about when you have rice in the sushi bar, because, I mean, how comes it should taste sour and salt? Why not just sweet? Because cooked rice is really have have the taste of the starch, um, which you have in most other grains. But you have also the salty and sour character. And the reason for that is really it's sort of covering an ancient coat, um, which is earlier times need for preservation. So sushi was really born as a preservation technique, where people discovered maybe in the third century that you could preserve fish by putting it sort of in layers, between layers of cooked rice. And uh, the rice would be the nutrients for the lactic bacteria that will ferment the fish. And then the fish would change flavor and people over time come to like that. But it was quite different from fresh fish. And of course it reflects the fact that in, in, in previous times we, didn't, we couldn't transport fresh fish from the seas inland or we didn't keep very well because we didn't have refrigerators or freezers. So people had to figure out various ways of maintaining the fish in, in good nutritional state. Interestingly enough, the nutritional value of sushi has been preserved through the ages, despite its various interpretations throughout the world. I'm interested in also, as a scientist, is um, what foodstuff contains in terms of nutrients. And uh, what is striking is that if you look at different populations across the world, they have different sort of lifestyle diseases. And um, it's, um, it's quite well established that in, um, in Japan, and also, but also other places in Asia where you have a sort of traditional diet with a lot of stuff from the ocean, that is fish and shellfish and seaweeds, that people generally are, live longer. Um, they suffer from other um, diseases than we do. I mean, they have less cancer, they have less diabetes, they have less uh, obesity. They're actually also brighter because the fatty acid seems to be very good for, for the formation and maintenance of, of the neural system. And um, did you know that the Japanese people, their IQ is 10% higher than ours on the average? I mean, that's sort of an interesting thing which reflects the fact that the diet has high amounts of polyunsaturated fatty acids, the omega-3 and omega-6 in proportions that are close to, to one, that is, you have equal amount of omega-3 and omega-6. And the kind of diet we have in the West, 
and in particular in the U.S., um, that the balance between omega-6 and omega-3 is out of proportion maybe by a factor of 20. In the West, we eat typically from 10 to 20 times as much omega-6 on the expense of omega-3. In the neural system and the brain in particular, the ratio between the two is one-to-one. So it, it seems that populations that have diets that are rich in seafood get the proper proportion of the polyunsaturated fatty acids. Before we started our interview, Ole pulled a copy of his new book out of his bag. Not his book on sushi, but his brand new book on seaweed. That's right, a whole book on seaweed. It hasn't been translated from Danish to English yet, but I had to ask him about it anyway. With more than 10,000 known species of seaweed on the planet, Ole said it was hard not to write a book about such an important food. Plus, of course, it gave him an excuse to keep eating sushi. It's the single most valuable agricultural production in the world. It's about $2 billion a year. It's a big industry. It's all farmed, big farms in the ocean. It's farmed on nets, and then it's cut off the nets and chopped up in sort of little pieces. And then it's made into kind of a pulp. And from the pulp to the nori, it's like producing paper. So nori is really a paper made of seaweed flakes. And the, the interesting science behind this is that when you produce ordinary paper, you use various kind of fibers from, from plants, for instance, and you need some kind of adhesive to keep the paper together, so you use different kinds of glue. But the seaweed has its own glue, which keeps it together. And this glue is water-soluble, so if you take a piece of nora and put it in water after a while, it'll go to the, back to the pieces from which it was, was made. And this glue, this is what we call polysaccharides. Chemically, it's called polysaccharides. And in the context of nutrition, it's called dietary fibers, in this case, soluble dietary fibers. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons that seaweed has very few calories, because these polysaccharides or carbohydrates are the kinds of carbohydrates our stomach can't um, turn into to sugars. So they are very low in calories. They have interesting technological applications, and many of us actually eat seaweed every day without knowing. It's used as an extract to make fluid things stiffer. So it could be in yogurts, it could be in foams, uh, juice foam, in beer, toothpaste, cosmetic products. A lot of these are stiffened or made into emulsions by extracts from seaweed. So it's a big business. Now, while I always think of sushi as a healthy lunch option, I've read so much about high mercury levels in sushi-grade fish that I limit myself to sushi a few times a month. I ask Ole about the realities of mercury in sushi. It is a problem, not only in tuna, but other fish that sort of grow to become very big. It's high up in the food web. And um, if people want to avoid the mercury, I mean, don't eat those fish. However, one should be careful not over-interpreting the advice because there's advice given, in particular pregnant women, that they should not eat those fish with high levels of mercury, which is, is fine. They should not do that. But sometimes people react in panic, such you overreact. So uh, I've met a lot of women and also pregnant women who then decide not to have any fish at all. The recent studies, uh, actually some of the, the biggest studies was were published just a few years ago in The Lancet, and, and it was spearheaded by an American um, psychiatrist, uh, Joseph Hippel from the NIH, which showed that children born 
or mothers who eat a lot of fish, the kids are performing much better on many counts, both respect to the verbal IQ, uh, various kind of fine gross motoric behavior, all the cognitive abilities, language, I mean, acquisition of language. Those kids born of mothers who eat more of omega-3 always perform much better. One thing that's fun about talking to Ole and reading his book is that you can tell this is something he really loves and really loves to eat. He's eaten at hundreds of sushi restaurants around the world, and I wanted to know what his favorite type of sushi restaurant looks like. You can get sort of down-to-earth sushi, which I really like, and that's also very fancy sushi. But there, there is actually also an ancient code here, because if you look at this uh, sushi, there's a certain size. It's all sort of, it's one bite. I mean, you usually wouldn't bite sushi, whether it's maki sushi or nigiri sushi. You're supposed to eat it with your fingers and just one bite. And that's because it was street food. I mean, you'd go to sort of a kiosk in the street, and the chef would just prepare it in front of you to eat it right out of his fingers, just as you would pass a sandwich bar or a sausage bar in the streets nowadays. So it is really kind of fast food. But of course, there's other f- types of food styles that sort of change over time, so you have sort of high cuisine also, um, which is quite separate from the way it is when it's street food. I happen to like it the way it's sort of really original way, which is not really fancy, but where it's the quality and the aesthetics in the presentation that is, is, uh, is key. My wife always says, you learn to prepare sushi the expensive way, and that is really sitting at the sushi bar and watching and asking these curious questions. And I've sort of been taking these questions back in my own kitchen and actually also to the lab. Because science, uh, to me at least, science is um, sort of um, something you spend all your life doing. If you're a true scientist, you never stop thinking as a a scientist. Ollie's book is called Sushi, Food for the Eye, the Body, and the Soul. And it's published by Springer. Thanks for listening, and Happy New Year. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means that we need your continued support to keep bringing you our weekly podcast series as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org Or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. See you next week.